Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 7, you can find that on page 49 in the Pew Bibles. And here we enter the first plague, first of ten, of course. And remember, in every passage of Scripture, we're asking three questions. No matter where we are in the Bible, we're asking three questions. In this passage, what is the need for redemption exposed? And then the second question is, how does God supply it? And the third question is always, what is our response to that? What is our appropriate response to the provision of redemption exposed in our need by this text? And we ask the same questions even when we're studying the plagues. Can we actually get to the gospel through the first plague? Absolutely. And as I said uh, in the baptism uh, meditation, <clears throat> it seems to me, you need to check this yourself, this is my theory, it seems to me that the ten plagues are a negative foil to the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are the expression of the mercy and grace of God. God gives us His law so that life would go well with us. The Bible tells us that uh, uh, frequently, especially in Deuteronomy. The law is given that life may go well with us. The law is given that we might flourish. The law is given that we might thrive. The law is given to humanize us. And these plagues show us the opposite of that. What does it look like when you pursue your own salvation? It looks like the plagues. The plagues are given to us by a gracious God to drive us to repentance, a salvation that was offered even to Pharaoh. So with an expectation that we're going to see the gospel afresh, even in the first plague, let's begin in verse 14 of, of Exodus chapter 7. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Remember I said we'll talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a future sermon. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your staff, their hand, the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of, the, of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, would you please open our hearts? Please do not let us harden them against you. And those hearts that are hardened this day, we pray you would remove them and you would replace them with hearts of flesh that would trust you alone for your salvation in Jesus Christ and experience life not only that is everlasting, but that is flourishing now. Open our hearts. Open our eyes that we would see the beautiful gospel even in this portion of Scripture. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake. And God's people said together, Amen. A few years ago, I made a new friend in Boston. He was serving on the staff of a church, wasn't serving in a pastoral position at the time. He was a ministry position, but he was not a pastor at the moment. He told me his story. He said he had planned to be a pastor. He'd gone to seminary, and while he was in seminary, he raised money to be a church planter. He was going to start new churches. And and he had raised all of his money by the time of graduation, all of the support he needed to start that new church. The day came for his graduation. It was an exciting day as graduations are. Family and friends came from around the country to celebrate with him. They watched him pass over the stage, receive his diploma. They celebrated afterwards. And, and then and after everyone had left, his wife sat down with him that night and said, I'm divorcing you. I'm divorcing you and I'm going to marry the man I've been having an affair with. I'm divorcing. I'm leaving. It's over. Well, he thought his life was over. He certainly thought his ministry was over. He couldn't be a pastor any longer. What kind of job would he get? Went to his senior pastor, a very dear friend of mine, the man whom he was serving and who had been mentoring him and coaching him along, he went to the senior pastor and he told him what had happened and he handed in his resignation. My friend, the senior pastor, pushed his resignation back across the desk and said, what is the meaning of this? You can't leave us. You need us more than ever. You're going to get another assignment in our staff 
so that you can heal. And we're going to walk alongside you in this path of suffering until the Lord puts you back together with his love. You rip up that resignation. You're here. You're stuck with us. You're not going anywhere. My new friend looked across the table to tell me, among other things, that he was, this was years previously, but the Lord had put him back together with his love, even to the point that he was getting remarried. But he said of my friend, that senior pastor, he said, I would walk through fire for that man. I would die for that man. I would go to the end of the earth for that man. That's what grace does to people. That's what redemption does to people. And that's what God's grace must do for us. The grace we meet with in every passage of Scripture, even a passage that describes the first plague. By the end of this study, we should look at the redeeming glory of God and say, I would die for that Savior. I would go anywhere for that Savior because He laid down His life for me that I might not suffer the plagues of death for all of eternity. I said earlier that the, the preface to the Ten Commandments, our catechism says, the preface to the Ten Commandments, the catechism says, teaches us three things. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out. God is the Lord, He is our God, and He is our Redeemer. And those three aspects, those, those three titles qualities of God that the, the, the catechism says must move us to obedience. I want you to see those, those three aspects of God's character worked out in this text. He is the Lord. He is our God and He is our Redeemer. He is the Lord. That's the, that is the absolute sovereign one. Each of these plagues reveals that God alone is the Lord, that God is the God above all gods. Because each of these plagues is not only matched against the commandments, but each of these plagues is strategically, is strategically focused on one of the false or several of the false gods of Egypt. The, the, the Egyptians worshipped a god named Hapi, H-A-P-I, they believed allowed the Nile to flood at certain times to leave its rich mineral deposits and bring its, its uh, fertile soil. They, they, washed, they worshipped another god named Khanum, who was the guardian god of the Nile. And they worshipped the chief of all the gods, Osiris, who was, uh, for whom the Nile was his lifeblood. Can you see what God is doing? God turns the river to blood. He shows that Khnum is not the guardian god of the Nile. He's the one who created the Nile. He's not the one that, that it is not Hapi who brings fertility to the soils of Egypt. It is God who does so. He shows that uh, the Nile is not the lifeblood of Osiris. Or if it is, he's turned it to death. God alone is 
Lord, and all other gods are no match for him. All of these demons keeping the Egyptians and the Israelites in captivity are no match for the sovereign God. But the Christian, the believer, Moses and Aaron knew this sovereign God not just as one who could turn water into blood, not one whom they were to to cower in fear from. They knew him to be, as David frequently called him, Adonai Yahweh, which is to say, Lord, Lord. He is the sovereign, sovereign one. He is the powerful, powerful one. He is the all-powerful one. And David rejoiced in that fact because he said, because I know God is my Savior, I know there is no one, nothing to fear. Let me give you some passages to look up later as you reflect on this, this title of God. Adonai Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. Uh, David says, for instance, in Psalm 16, verse 2, that knowing God as Adonai Yahweh removes the fear of death. He says in Psalm 68, 20, knowing God as Adonai Yahweh removes the fear of man. Psalm 109, verse 21, it removes the fear of shame. We need that one especially in the South. We fear shame almost more than death. Psalm 109, verse 21. Psalm 140, verse 7 says, Knowing God as Adonai Yahweh removes the fear of injustice. You know that God is your judge and He will bring about right. Psalm 141, verse 8 says, God removes the fear of the future. Just in case none of your fears have been mentioned, So far, he says, it removes the fear of anything else you can imagine. In the future, when you know that God, the sovereign one, is your God. And he's become so through Jesus Christ. You wonder how you can have God as your God that way. It's just this simple. You ask him to become your God through Jesus Christ. You ask Christ to take away your sin, give you his righteousness, make you his son or daughter, make you his child. And then all of these promises and every promise from Genesis to Revelation is yours, sealed to you in Jesus Christ who joins your life to his and his to yours. Now what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of knowing the sovereign Lord as Adonai Yahweh? It is to experience the Nile turning to blood. It's the putrefaction, it's the tragedy of continuing to live by idols, continuing to live by some other God, continuing to live by your self-salvation. Idols only take, they only demand more and more and more. They're never satisfied and they're vulnerable. They're fragile. They're not trustworthy. Because God is a God of love and redemption, when He saves you, when He determines to save you, He will destroy every idol that stands in between you and Him. May be painful, may be severe, but He does it because He loves you.
You see, God's vocation is to redeem. God's vocation is to save. So even when he sends judgment, even when he sends a plague, it is ultimately to draw people to salvation. It is to draw the Israelites into closer fellowship with him. It is to convince them, is to, is to remove their doubts. And he is offering to Pharaoh and the Egyptians salvation. That's why Moses is careful to say, this, even this, did not change his heart. Why does he say that? Because God offered it in order to change his heart. God didn't send uh, this plague, turn water into blood, just because he loves watching people, uh, watching people in their misery. He doesn't love to bring misery he doesn't love to bring discomfort. He doesn't love to bring punishment. He loves to save. And yet, we are so locked into our idols, so locked into our salvation at times. He must come at us severely in order mercifully to move us to redemption. I mentioned last week the the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a professor at, at Oxford, the other Oxford, the one in England. He was a professor there in, in, in uh, literature and, there in, and served there from the 40s to the 60s and wrote uh, as he became a Christian. He, he started writing down his, his understanding of the Christian life in Chronicles of Narnia, a series among many other books that he wrote to help fellow laymen see the God of grace as he had seen him. He, he says that in his autobiography that God had to drag him kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Well, C.S. Lewis had two students at Oxford, one named Sheldon Van Auken and the other Gene Davis, known as Davy among her friends. Sheldon and Davy married. They became very close, intimate friends with, with uh, their professor C.S. Lewis and remained so for the rest of their lives, but they were not Christians. And so Lewis continued to share his faith with them after they married, after they moved away. <clears throat> and eventually, Davy became a Christian. Sheldon Van Auken in his book, Severe Mercy, says that when they first married, their love was idolatrous. They loved each other more than anybody else and didn't want anybody else in their lives. They didn't want to share their love with anyone else. They were completely captivated with each other to the point, he says, it was idolatrous. He even called it a pagan love. So when Davy became a Christian through her correspondence with C.S. Lewis, when Davy became a Christian, Sheldon became jealous. He resented Christ. He wanted Jesus to leave. He said, I wanted him to take a very long vacation and to leave us alone. He had invaded our marriage, our perfect love, and ruined everything. He resented Jesus Christ. Davy loved Jesus, and by loving Jesus, loved her husband even more. And loved him so much that she was burdened that if he were to die, he would go to hell. It was more than she could bear. 
One evening, Sheldon came into their living room and heard his wife praying. She was on her knees. And she said, do whatever it takes to bring Sheldon to yourself, even if it means taking me out of his life. He trembled at those words. Not long after, she was diagnosed with cancer. Not long after that, she died. It was a horrific grief, he said. It nearly killed him. C.S. Lewis continued to correspond with him. And then miracle of miracles, out of that bitterness, out of that resentment, out of that grief, Sheldon Van Auken gave his life to Christ and thanked God for the severe mercy of taking his wife away from him into the arms of Jesus that he might come to Christ and someday be reunited with her. That may be disturbing to some of you, that story. And if it is, it is because this life still means more to you than eternal life. And it's impossible for you to see how God can be so merciful that he would take away something even precious to you because he loves your soul more than you do. God is the Lord. He will have no other gods between you and him, not because he's failing in his ego's strength, but because he loves you. He made you in His image. He wants you with Him. He wants you to live not only eternally, but He wants you to live now. He wants you to quit drinking from those water sources of blood and to drink from His waters of abundant life. Because God is the Lord, we must love Him because God is our God. We must love and trust Him. He is our God. The, the confession says, the catechism says, because He is, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is a different word in Hebrew. It's Elohim. It's a covenantal word. It's a word of relationship. Here are some of the places where Elohim shows up this idea of God being our God. It comes in Genesis chapter 1 when he says, let us make man and woman in our image. It's the God who lovingly created us. The God who lovingly and, and with craftsmanship shaped us into those who bear his image. It's the God in Psalm 8 who crowns us with glory and honor. Who what is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist says, or the son of man that you take notice of him? You've made him only a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. That's the word Elohim who does that. In psalm 42, verses 1 and 5, where 
the, where the psalmist is, is crying out in his spiritual depression. He says, oh, my God, my Elohim, you are the one who lifts me up. Why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in the covenant God who cares for the depressed, who puts his hands tenderly under the downcast countenance of someone who is depressed and, and hopeless. This is who God is. He's our God. And, and our God implies, too, that we are one another, that we are the people of God, we're the family of God. And when you come into the church, you come into a family. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional your family in the past is. Come into the church, we'll put the fun in your dysfunction. We'll put the fun back in your fundamentalism. You, you don't get a perfect family. You get a, you get a, a, a dysfunctional but redeemed family. And a family who chooses to love you for no other reason than Jesus died for you. You get a family who loves you across boundaries of, that are invented by other people. You come into a family who loves you and walks with you through the brokenness of this world. So what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of the good that God has for us when we recognize Him, when we, when we trust Him as our God? It is loneliness. It's despair. You, you see, these, these Egyptians only needed to do one thing. Pharaoh only had to do one thing to get his water back. It was for him to say, help me. Oh, Lord God, Elohim, help, save. That's all it took. But instead, he walked away. He entered his house. He went into the privacy and the despair of his own quarters. Why would you remain outside the family of God? Why would you remain outside of the family, the church family of God? I saw this pitifully played out a long time ago. I had a neighbor who was, a neighbor who was actually a member of the church I was pastoring, but she was an absolutely miserable person. She was angry about everything. Everything rubbed her the wrong way. She was bitter. She was ungrateful. She was jealous. She was disappointed in the way her life had turned out. But people in her church family loved her anyway. They kept going after her. They kept trying to draw her in, trying to show her what she should be grateful for. And, and here, was the, here was the pinnacle for me of, of just how resolute she was to remain, to remain miserable. It was Thanksgiving, and we had just moved into our, into our house, and, and uh, we weren't going to be able to pull off a Thanksgiving dinner that day, that, that, uh, that Thanksgiving. So friends in the church said, they were all uh, people in the church who didn't have family in town, and they said, let's have, a, let's have an orphan Thanksgiving. Let's all get together. Everybody bring what you bring something, and we, we pooled our resources, and we all came to Thanksgiving. And they made a point to invite my neighbor. And I invited my neighbor too. And she said, no, I'm having Thanksgiving by myself. 
I said, why would you want to do something like that? Look, this place, is, you don't even have to bring anything. The people are going to be there, the people who love you. All of them have invited you. Individually, they've invited Why don't you join us? Have Thanksgiving. No, I'm going to have it by myself. We couldn't, we couldn't drag her there. We went and had Thanksgiving. We, we gave thanks and we had lots of food and there was lots of laughter and we stayed late into the night. When I got home, I went over to check on her and there she was sitting in the darkness watching TV with a TV dinner. And I'm not against TV dinners. I've, I've lived by TV dinners. God's caused me to survive through critical years, through TV dinners. But it was pitiful on, on Thanksgiving. She had nothing but a TV dinner watching TV in darkness. When she could have had that life that our God offers in the family of God. The Egyptians could have had it. Pharaoh could have had it. But he refused. There's a third reason we love God revealed in the Lord Jesus. It's He's our Redeemer. Verses 20 to 22 tell us uh, what they tried to do. Or verses 23 and 24 tell us what they tried to do when, they, when their water turned to blood. Instead of crying out to the Lord, they tried to dig their own wells. And everywhere they dug, it was blood. Why would you continue to try to redeem yourself? When Jesus Christ says, I've done it all. Here's what I offer to you. Reconciliation with the Lord God. Here's what I offer to you. A family in the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what I offer to you. Redemption from all your sins, all your past. The fear of death, the fear of shame. I offer you eternal life. And I've done it. By drinking the blood of God's wrath in your place. I've tasted the blood. I've spilled my blood. I have put myself under the plague that you might not have to endure the same. Quit digging your own wells. Quit trying to make yourself good enough. Quit trying to erase that record from the past. Quit trying to shape up yourself and make yourself strong enough emotionally or, or even physically to reshape your life in a way that's going to be acceptable. Give it up. Jesus has done it all. Quit trying to dig those wells that will bring nothing. Why do you continue to turn to those, those cheap things? We can't leave Sheldon Van Auken where he was. He did become a Christian, yes. He continued to grieve deeply and miss Davy. But 30 years later, he revealed to us his literary fans something we had never known about Jean Davis. That when she was 14 years old, she'd become pregnant, obviously out of wedlock. Her father had already died. 
Her mother and sister walked her through the pregnancy. She named the baby a beautiful blue-eyed baby. She named her Marion. And then she entrusted her to an adoption agency. Thirty years later, Sheldon Van Auken finally found Marion. He wrote a book called Little Marion and Other Mercies. She, he, he, he got permission from the adoption agency to send her the book about her mother, A Severe Mercy. Marion, he found out, had become a Christian herself. She was married. She had a family. And when she got the word, when she got connected to Sheldon, this is the first thing she wrote to him. At once thrilling and scaring, my heart is pounding. I'm almost breathless with discovery, unable to sleep till I'd read every word of that book, excited beyond belief, sobbing my pillow wet with tears, seeing my mother as a young woman, loving the things I loved, beauty, dogs, sails in the wind, music. I'd been starving for this. Thank you for protecting my mother's love. Thank you for sharing with me the piercing beauty of Christ coming into our lives. That's the God of grace. The God who gives and the God who takes away. The God who takes away, but He gives so much more. Because He gives Himself that you might live with Him into all of eternity. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, our Lord, our Redeemer, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And thank You for, become, for coming to reveal Your name, Savior, to us in Jesus. May there not be one person who leaves this place or within the sound of my voice who leaves without trusting you fully, who leaves without thanking you, who leaves without new resolve to respond gratefully to every command. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for saving. Get a name for yourself in our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.